let us hear from the word of the Lord. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We will return to that passage here in just a little bit. I guess a good slash bad thing, as Tabs already says, is in a message like this, you don't need an introduction to draw attention because we're all listening. Before I dive in here, I do just want to highlight one um, brief resource, one way that we as a church are hoping to come alongside and equip everyone in this church in how to think about this issue biblically and compassionately. On the back table, there's a book called Is God Anti-Gay? And Other Questions About Homosexuality the Bible, and same-sex attraction. I think we have about 25 copies on the back. These are yours, free of charge. Grab one, maybe one per family would be ideal, but if you have readers or people who like to underline things in books, grab two if you need them. If we run out, let myself or Tiff know. We will buy more, and they will be here on the back table next week, but this is a great resource that just provides a really good introduction into these issues, and I think that you will be built up biblically and that you will walk away from this book just desiring to um, really just amazed by the gospel at work in all of our lives. So pick that up, and we will get more if necessary. Well, this morning, for, for what is a complex topic, I do just have two simple goals for us. And that is first, as Tab's already said here, that we would have biblical clarity about what the Bible says about homosexual behavior. And secondly, that we would grow in biblical compassion towards those who are either struggling with same-sex attraction or those who have embraced a gay identity. So that's our goal. We want to develop biblical clarity, and we want to increase in biblical compassion. That's important. We want to to grow in compassion because this isn't just an issue. This isn't just a, a political topic or something to argue over. But this issue is about people. This is an issue about people in our congregation, people in our workplaces, people in our neighborhoods and classrooms, and maybe even people in your family. And these are people to be loved. So to help us have biblical clarity and compassion on this topic, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a, we're going to take a journey through the, through the four movements of God's story, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, considering what it has to say about homosexuality. So creation, we're beginning with creation here because it's here that God gives us the blueprint. He gives us his design for how we've been created to live and to flourish. And as we think about this topic this morning, the creation realities are are very important for us because they lay the groundwork for how the rest of the Bible, including Jesus himself, talks about sex and marriage. Think from Genesis 1 and 2. There are are two important realities that God would have us to see as we think about sex and relationships. The first is in Genesis 1 where we see that God created humans in his image as male and female with the purpose that they would be fruitful and multiply. That is, that through their sexual union that they would have children. Moses Moses writes in Genesis 27 and 28, 
He says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. The second thing for us to see here is how creation defines the context or the relationship where Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 2.24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Here we see the first marriage in history as God brings Eve to Adam and unites them together in marriage, and they become one flesh. This phrase here, one flesh, it points to their, their sexual intimacy. And together in Genesis 1 and 2, we, we see two purposes that God has given for sex. The first is that it would bring about children. They were to be fruitful and multiply. But secondly, as we see here in Genesis 2, that it would express and actually deepen the unity between a husband and wife. That it would deepen that one flesh relationship. And this is also important for us to see in this discussion is how Moses in verse 22 and 24 here, he makes it clear that he's not just talking about Adam and Eve here. Because as he begins this sentence with the word therefore, he's taking a step back and he's showing us how their experience, how Adam and Eve's experience here is to be the pattern for all generations. It's not just something that happened in Genesis 1 and 2 because there was only one male and one female. But the therefore here takes a step back and sets this pattern, this blueprint for God's design for all future generations. So creation here shows us that marriage is between a man and a woman. And it's only in this relationship that they're to become one flesh. Not much new information here, I trust, but it's, but it's very important for us to start here, to be reminded of these things, because these creation realities have a real impact on how we're supposed to think and talk about this issue. And I'm particularly convinced that, that what we just saw here gives us the ability to tell a much better story about sex and relationships than the one that we're hearing in our culture today. I mean, just think of what we've seen. One, one of the things that so often gets overlooked is that right here on the first pages of our Bible is that sex is God's idea. I mean, sex is one of God's many gifts to us, and it's a sign of his goodness. You see, God could have, could have made sex as something purely functional. I was trying to think of a, a good illustration here, and putting on shoes was the only thing I could come up with. You know, I mean, God, God could have made sex something like putting on shoes. It's nothing exciting. It's just something that you have to do before you go out for the day. But God, in his goodness, he's made it something that's pleasurable, something that, that deepens the unity between a husband and a wife. And unfortunately, when Christians talk about sex, we can just leave this part out. We're too busy telling people what we're against, that we leave out all of the good things that we are for. But creation shows us here that God invented sex. It was his idea. We don't need to shy away from talking about this. Sex is God's gift. It's a good gift to be enjoyed by his people in the context of marriage. We can tell a better story because God invented it and because God's design is the only thing that leads to human flourishing. It shows us what is best and what is most life-giving. 
And this is important for us to keep in mind because it, because it speaks to one of the most popular questions out there. As I've been in different contexts, as I've been fielding different questions and asking uh, people, they, they know we're preaching on this, and so I'm saying, hey, what are some things you would love to hear? What are some questions that you have? And time and time again, people were saying, we are just hearing the question all the time, why is it wrong if two people love each other? I mean, they're not hurting anyone. And this is a good question, and it's one that by God's grace, his creation realities here help us answer. Because as we look, because while it might not appear at first or on the surface that harm is being done, that, that someone's being hurt, as we look at God's creation realities, we can have confidence that there's no way against going, that going against God's design is going to end well. I mean, before coming on staff here, I worked in, I worked in aerospace, and I, and I often find my, found myself at various suppliers making sure that they were going to be delivering us our parts on time. And during these visits, uh, my contacts would always take me on a shop tour where they would show me all of the machines, all of the different areas of their facilities with the hope that we would see how great they are and we would give them new business. They, they were talking to the wrong person. But uh, regardless to say, I went on all of these shop tours, and, and it was really fascinating to see just some of these machines were, were small, some parts were still being banged out and made by hand. But each of these shops had these huge and complex machines. I mean, there were these huge machines that would stretch out these large, thick pieces of metal that would form them into different shapes for various parts of the airplanes. Um, or there would be large um, five- or six-axis lathes that were just really the coolest machines ever. They would cut and drill holes into these huge blocks of steel or aluminum, and they would just make really—it was just amazing to watch these things work. Now, as I was walking with them around their shops, getting these tours, never once did they let me run any of these machines— because they knew that I had no idea how these machines worked. And if I tried to use them in a way that they weren't designed to be used, the way that they weren't created to be used, I was going to do a whole lot of damage to myself and to everyone in that shop. And the truth is, friends, as we think about sex, it's true. The exact same thing is true. Because as we think about God's design, if we're not using it according to his design, then we're going to do real damage to ourselves and to others. And unfortunately, we don't have to look around. We don't have to look very hard to see the damage that's being done all around us. So what might not look like on the surface is harm. We can just have conviction that to go against God's design will not end well. But in the wake of this devastation, God's creation realities, they give us a better story to tell. One that leads to wholeness, one that leads to happiness and flourishing. One that sees sex as gift and not as ultimate or as our identity. So church, let us be those who, who believe this better story here. Those who live into this better story and those who tell this story to the world around us. But as we've already touched on this morning, we know that our story of sexuality doesn't end in Genesis 2. But the story continues, and Genesis 3 shows us the fall. It shows us what went wrong with the world and why everything around us isn't the way that it's meant to be. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit that God had forbidden, sin entered the world and set in motion a curse that affects everyone and everything like acid ring, and it ruins everything that it touches, including our sexuality. 
Sin has distorted our attractions, it's distorted our desires, and it's distorted our behaviors. And now we all face temptations that weren't part of God's original design. And this brings us to to an important point for our discussion, and that's the, the need for us to distinguish between temptation on the one hand and sin on the other hand. I mean, it's particularly important that we keep in mind here that temptation is not sin. We can be tempted and not be sinning. And these, these are two different things. Now, certainly to indulge our temptations to sin is sin. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that to not give in to these temptations is sin. But I'm just saying that in and of itself, the presence of a temptation in our hearts is not sin. If this was the case, then Jesus, who the author of Hebrews tells us was tempted in every way as we are, he would have been guilty of sin. But that's not what the author of Hebrews tells us. It tells us that he was tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus was tempted and did not sin. And so with this distinction here between temptation and sin laid out, we can make another distinction here that is important for our conversation, and that's the distinction between same-sex attraction on the one hand and same-sex behavior on the other hand. We believe that same-sex attraction falls into this temptation category. Like all other temptations, it can certainly lead to sin, but in and of itself, it is not sinful. In fact, there are, many, there are many Christians who are tempted in this way, who are living godly and faithful lives. Sam Albury, the author of that book that we have on the back table, is himself a man who's only ever known same-sex attraction and yet is living a godly, faithful, celibate life um, in the midst of that. He is desiring to honor God with his body in the midst of a celibate life. So same-sex attraction is a temptation that's come as a result of the fall, but it's not sinful. And this makes it different from same-sex behavior, which is always a choice and which the Bible clearly calls sin. So this raises another important question for us to consider, one that you all have mentioned as well, and that's how do we respond to those who say that they are, are born this way? Because as I've said, because of the fall, the, the, the curse of sin has ruined and distorted everything, including our sexuality. And as a result, there are people, there are some even in this room here, who've only ever experienced same-sex attraction like Sam Alberry. This wasn't something they willingly chose. So why shouldn't they be able to act on these feelings? But to answer this question, I think it's helpful for us to keep in mind that the presence of a temptation or an inclination isn't license for giving into them. I mean, if that was the case, then any act, any behavior could, could be justified just by saying, oh, well, I was born that way. I was born with this temptation. So, so I can get angry all I want because I'm inclined, I'm tempted towards anger. That's how I was born, so I have free reign to do it. But if we justified our behavior like that, it would lead to chaos. I was reminded of this on Friday as, as uh, Donna had a tutor training, so she was gone all day. So I was home alone with the kids. Now, usually this is a scary thing just in and of itself, just when I'm home alone with all four kids. But as I was thinking about this point in my sermon, I just became terrified as I thought about what would happen in my home, about what would happen to my home if all of my kids had free reign to give in to all of the temptations that they were born with. Friends, things would, would not have gone well. 
And the same is true for each of us and the temptations that we have in our own hearts. The mere presence of these temptations is not a reason to give in to them. It's not a license to give in to them. But rather, God, because of these temptations here, has given us his word that's to guide and direct how we think and act, that it might reign in our sin, that it might lead to human flourishing for each and every one of us. So even if this is a very real temptation, one that they might have been born with, the Bible is calling this person to submit their feelings and desires to his word, to obey his word for their good and their joy. And this is true for all of us, no matter our temptations. And so thus far, I've assumed here that same-sex behavior is a sin. And now I want us to look at a couple passages that specifically address this behavior to see if that, in fact, is true. I want to be assuming here. So let's look at the Bible. The first two passages that, that explicitly speak to this behavior come from the book of Leviticus. Let's read them together. The first one in Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And the second one here from Leviticus 20, it's actually verse 13. I gave her the wrong reference there. In Leviticus 20 verse 13 says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Sure, they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, I think both of these passages are pretty clear and should be taken at face value. Because they're so clear, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on them other than to highlight how these verses, which these that, rather than to highlight that these verses prohibit all in any form of same-sex behavior. There, there are no qualifications here. There are no caveats. All same-sex behavior engaged in for any reason or any relationship is condemned. And this is important for us because there are some, as, as Tab had mentioned, this, this is a debated issue in our church. There are some who will look at these verses and say that they're only prohibiting certain types of same-sex behavior, like, like exploitative sex or, or perhaps rape. But that's just not in the text, friends. That is just not here. These verses are prohibiting all forms of same-sex behavior, even if it's occurring in the context of a consensual and loving relationship between two people. Now these, now these two, two verses, especially because they're in the book of Leviticus, will cause a lot of people to criticize Christians for picking and choosing which Old Testament laws to apply. I'm sure you've heard this before. The, the accusation usually goes something like this. Well, you know, the, the, same, passages, the same passage here that prohibits same-sex behavior also prohibits eating shellfish or eating pork or even wearing clothes of, made of two fabrics like I am today. What about those laws? Why don't you keep those two? The thinking here being that Christians are, are just hypocrites who, who pick and choose which passages to apply based on our own subjective morality. Now, there are a, lot, a variety of ways that we can respond to this question, a variety of good ways, but, but one of the most important things for us to consider when determining whether an Old Testament law like these or even the food laws still apply to Christians today is to see if they're repeated or repealed in the New Testament. 
In, in the case of food, for example, the New Testament clearly shows us that all foods are clean. The, the food laws no longer apply to us. Jesus said that all foods are clean. So when we think about shellfish or pork, you can eat to your heart's content, as Jesus has said, look, those laws no longer apply to you. But in the case of same-sex behavior, we see that the New Testament addresses this three times in three different books of the Bible, and each time is clear in calling it a sin. I want us to look at just one of those passages this morning in Romans 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. Romans 1 is perhaps the most important passages in our Bibles when addressing the question of same-sex behavior. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, we're going to have the verses on the screen. Here in, in Romans 1, verses 26 and 27, Paul writes this. He says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their heir. Paul opens by saying, for this reason, God gave them up. And verse 25 tells us the reason. It's because the people exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And in response to their idolatry, we see God giving the people over to their sin. In effect, he's saying, look, this is what you want? Well, then here you go. Let's see how that works out for you. And I think that this is helpful because it shows us here that the, the sins that are listed aren't the reason for God's wrath, but they're the result of it. The judgment here in Romans 1 isn't because of same-sex behavior, but it is the result. But same-sex behavior is the result of God's wrath, of God's giving them over. In light of, and because of their idolatry, which Paul shows us here, is the main sin. In this case, he shows us um, how God has given them over to their dishonorable passions, as Paul says in verse 26. In this case, he shows how women exchanged natural sexual relations with men for women, and the men gave up natural sexual relations with women for men. And it makes sense that he specifically lists these sins here, not because they're somehow worse than other sins, but because they're a very clear illustration of the idolatrous impulse in our hearts to turn away from God's good order and design that we saw in creation and instead worship and serve ourselves rather than God, the creator. And here again, we see the importance of God's creation realities for our discussion because God created Adam and Eve as male and female, and he brought them together in marriage. That is his design. And so that's why Paul says when men engage in sexual behavior with men or women with other women, they're exchanging, they're giving up God's good design, and they're doing what's unnatural. So these verses here clearly show us that same-sex behavior is a sin, but we can't distance ourselves from this passage either if same-sex attraction or same-sex behavior is not something that you are tempted by. Because as I've already mentioned here, same-sex behavior is just one of sin that Paul uses to illustrate our idolatry, but he doesn't stop there. 
So just in case you're tempted to harbor a sense of superiority in your heart, perhaps just that there are are glimmers of of self-righteousness in your heart, thinking that you're better than others because you're you're heterosexual or maybe you've never given in to same-sex attraction. If you find yourself tempted like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable to, to thank God that you're not like those listed in Romans 1, 26 and 27, then we need to keep reading. Because as Paul goes on to show us in verses 28 to 32, we are all sinners. Let's read what, let's read what Paul writes in these verses. And as, as he lists these sins, consider where you find yourself here. Paul continues again. He just finished condemning same-sex behavior, and he continues. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and covetousness, malice. They are full of, they are full of envy and murder. Have you ever had angry thoughts in your heart towards someone? Then that's you. Strife continues. Strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Have you ever done that? Slanders. Ever spoken poorly of someone else? Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, ever had a moment of pride in your hearts? He goes on. (laughs) They are inventors of evil. They are disobedient to parents. I think the nail in the coffin for all of us. They are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Hear the words of verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval, but they have approval to those who practice them. Are you hearing what Paul's saying here? Here in Romans 1, while not denying the seriousness of same-sex behavior, Paul's showing us how all of our sin is a serious affront to our Creator. He's showing how all of us deserve to die, deserve to experience God's just judgment against our sin. Here in Romans 1, we see that we've all been caught out, called out as those who deserve to bear God's wrath. And that's where Romans 1 ends. But thankfully, this isn't where God's story ends because there's another movement of redemption. Because more than anything else, the Bible tells God's story of redemption. The story of God freely and lovingly saving those who deserve his just judgment. And to help us see this more clearly, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6 and look at the verses that Mindy read for us earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Hear this. Let these words sink in. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What a beautiful and hope-giving passage for all of us, for all of our hearts. Such were some of you. 
hear why this passage here clearly calls same-sex behavior, practicing homosexuality, as Paul puts it, or as the ESV translates it. He clearly calls it a sin. Paul's showing us here that it's not an excluding sin. It's not a, it's not a sin that's outside the bounds of God's grace. So if you're here and you're, you're tempted to believe, or unfortunately, if you have ever been told that there is no way that God could save you, that this sin is just somehow too bad, well then hear God's word of grace to you this morning as Paul writes, such were some of you. But as I said, this is really a word of grace for all of us because I think everyone in this room would be hard-pressed to not place ourselves in verses 9 and 10 here. And yet in the midst of our sin, the gospel, the good news of how God saved us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it comes to us. And verse 11 shows us the three things that it does for us. First, Paul says that the gospel comes to us and it washes us. The gospel cleanses us from the guilt and shame of our sin. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we're no longer defined by our sin, by the things that we've done. But we've been made clean. We've been made acceptable in God's eyes. And this imagery of being washed, I think, is particularly relevant as we consider sexual sin. Because unlike other sins, it seems like our sexual sin comes loaded with shame. We see this in Genesis 3 where the, where the first thing after eating the fruit and their, their eyes being opened, the first thing that Adam and Eve experience is shame surrounding their nakedness. And ever since that time in the garden, this has been the common experience for everyone since. So if you're here and you're aware or you are perhaps overwhelmed with shame because of sexual sin in your past or in your present, hear God's word today that if you have trusted in Jesus, you have been washed. You have been made clean. Because on the cross, Jesus bore your shame that you might never have to. So the gospel comes to us and washes us. It makes us spiritually clean And second, Paul tells us that the gospel sanctifies us. Here it frees us from the power of sin in our lives. Because because of the cross, we we are no longer captive to sin's power because we've been given the Holy Spirit who enables and empowers us to become more like Jesus. No, I'm not saying that we're no longer going to face the presence of sin in our lives. That's not possible here in this fallen world. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are no longer given over to our sin. And now change is possible. The Holy Spirit can remove our temptations from us so that we experience freedom in these areas of our lives. And I know that he's done this for some of you and we thank God. So the Spirit can remove these temptations, can change us in our sanctification, or more likely, these temptations become the very places in our lives where God is at work changing us, making us more like Jesus as he sanctifies us. As we grow in our dependence to fight our temptations with his help. Now we're going to talk more about this next week, but I just want to mention that one of the ways that God helps us to overcome our temptations is through his people. So if you're here and you experience same, and same-sex attraction is something that you personally struggle with, I want to encourage you to talk to someone about this. Talk with one of the elders or our wives. Talk with your home group leader. Talk with anyone. I mean, I know this is a sensitive thing, and it takes a lot of courage 
But just like any temptation that we face, God desires that we walk in the light, letting the community bear this burden with us. I was recently talking with a member who was, who was expressing their gratefulness to me that when they shared their struggle with same-sex attraction to others in this church, they weren't met with a judgment or rebuke. There were, no, there were no strange looks, but they were met with compassion and grace. This member said that their only regret was that they hadn't done it sooner. And I was so grateful and by God's grace, not surprised that this was their experience because this has been my experience every time that I've been open and shared my own struggles and temptations with others in this church. So I've experienced grace and compassion. So please don't keep this hidden because when our sin is hidden, we're isolated and we're vulnerable. But God desires that we walk in the light with one another. So reach out to those you trust, those who are going to care for you biblically and be ready to receive God's grace. And for the rest of us here, as we desire to be a place where those who are struggling will be open and honest, let's make our church a place where it's safe and easy for us to talk about. And the best way that we can, can do that is, is by ourselves being open and honest with our temptations, sexual or otherwise, that we might receive God's grace ourselves and more freely show it to others. So I find this is, this is true in my own heart. As I share where I'm struggling, as I share where I need God's grace, I am reminded of who God is for me. And as I'm made more aware of this, I become more amazed at who God is for me. And I just become ready and wanting to give and extend this grace to those who God wants to meet with his grace, those in struggles and in temptations. So the gospel washes us, the gospel sanctifies us. And lastly here, we see that the gospel justifies us. The gospel declares us righteous. It makes us right with God. Because in Jesus' sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection, he paid the penalty for our sins, bearing the wrath that we deserved. Remember Romans 1, deserving to die. But Jesus bore that so that we can be restored to our relationship with him. This is, this is the hope and the beauty of the gospel, the good news that we are no longer defined by our past, but we've been justified. We've been given a new identity in Jesus. Did you catch that? In verse 11 here, Paul says that we've been washed, we've been sanctified, and we've been justified in the name of Jesus. And this is speaking to this new identity that we have been given in Christ. And I think the issue of identity is so important for us, especially as we consider how, how the sexual revolution has, has co-opted the hearts and minds of so many people today by convincing us that we are our sexual identity, that we are our sexual identity. So when it comes to, to sharing what the Bible says about same-sex behaviors we've been looking at this morning, that is not just speaking about a behavior, but it is an affront, it is an attack to who they are to the very person. It, it cuts to the very heart of who they are. The church here, staking our identity and our sexuality, or pinning our hopes for happiness on our sexuality, is just too low of a goal for someone created in the image of God. And that's why Paul's calling us to look to Jesus and to see our identity in him, because we're not our sexuality or anything else. But if you've trusted in Jesus, then you are united to him. 
You are an adopted child of God, a fellow heir with Christ. You are deeply loved and accepted. That is your identity. That is what is most true of you, and that is the most important thing about you. It is not your sexuality. It is not your preferences, whatever they might be, but it is that you are an adopted child of God. That is the good news of the gospel. That is what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ does for us. It washes us, it sanctifies us, it justifies us, and it gives us a new identity in Christ. Now, if you're here and you wouldn't think of yourself as a Christian, or maybe someone dragged you here, I just want you to consider this life-giving truth this morning. Today, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he is offering you true freedom in an identity that's better than anything the world has to offer. You see, to, to seek your identity in your sexuality or in any other form of idolatry, it only leads to emptiness. Because that's what our idols, the things that we look to for meaning, are designed to do. They always ask for more and more, and they give less and less, until ultimately they have everything, and we're left with nothing. That is what our idols do to us. But in the gospel, Jesus is offering you everything that you were created to experience and created to long for. And the scandal of the gospel is that it costs you nothing because of what Jesus has done. So if you're here and you've experienced the emptiness of what the world is offering, Jesus is inviting you to turn from seeking your identity in those things that will never satisfy, and he's calling you to look to him and to receive the abundant life that only he can offer because it's only found in him. Well, so far we've seen creation, fall, and redemption, but there's a final scene in God's redemptive story what theologians call consummation. This speaks to the, to the culmination of God's story, where Jesus will return and we will forever be in his presence. And this final scene in God's story is meant to give us great hope and encouragement because it shows us how we are going to live forever once God makes all things new. It's a picture of the future when we will no longer experience sin or experience the temptation to sin, but we will experience perfect communion with God as we are transformed into the perfect image of God. Just hear how the Apostle John describes this final transformation. The book of 1 John, chapter 3, he says, Beloved, we are, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is, a, this is a, an amazing verse, friends. On that day when Jesus appears, when he returns, we will see him clearly. We will see him face to face. And John tells us that we will become like him. And let this image give you great hope. Our life on earth here is filled with trials and temptations, but one day we will be transformed into the perfect image of God as we come face to face with our great Savior and our great Redeemer, never to experience sin or temptation of any kind again. And oh, what a glorious day that is going to be. Well, we've been on, we've been on quite the, the journey today, right? 
We've looked at God's story, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And I hope that you're seeing how it gives us biblical clarity on the issue of same-sex behavior and how it compels us as those who have received much of God's grace to be those who share and show this grace to all. As we seek to have compassion specifically for those who struggle in this area or those who have given themselves over. Well, I want to invite the band to come up. I want to release the Lord's Supper servers um, to prepare the elements because we're going to close our service this morning um, remembering and celebrating the great truths that we've heard this morning, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all who trusted in him have been washed sanctified and justified and on that day when jesus returns we'll become like him we will forever be glorified and we're going to do this as we celebrate the lord's supper the lord's supper it's a sacrament it's a it's a practice that jesus gives to his church to remind us what he's done for us and to increase our longing for the day when he returns and seeing him will become like him never to experience sin or face temptation again that's what the bread and the cup are meant to do for us. And we do this because on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and blessed it and said, this is, this is, the, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in just a moment, when you're ready, I want to invite you to come down the center aisles to receive a piece of the bread, um, to receive a piece of bread, to take a cup with the wine or juice. And as you receive the elements, hear again God's words of grace to you, such or some of you. And friends, let us rejoice. Let us give thanks to God's kindness to us in Jesus. And let's look forward to that day in faith when our faith will become sight and seeing Jesus will become like him. You may come.